I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon, and this week, we've got another guest, and we're going to talk about one of the craziest endurance sporting events there is, the Badwater 135-mile running race. Our guest today, Tim Deere, Purple Patch athlete. And you might not have heard of Tim, at least through his athletic accomplishments, but he is very, very accomplished. 14 Boston Marathons, more than 20 Ironman races, the Leadville running race. And now, our subject of today, his experience is training for and successfully completing this 135-mile running race of madness. We're going to hear about how he juggles a time-starved life with a crazy travel schedule, family of four kids, and, of course, utilising the Purple Patch methodology, swimming and cycling to help foster his readiness. Not only is he one of the heaviest athletes to ever finish, he also did it on probably less running miles than you might imagine. It's a fascinating story. In many ways, it's inspirational. You probably will leave this conversation either thinking, I want to go forth and do this, but more likely, I never want to do that race. But I do hope that you're inspired to take action. He talks about some very key components of problem solving, discipline, success, and how anyone can find their own special brand of excellence. So we're going to get cracking into this. Before we do this, we're going to do Word of the Week. And we are going to play the jingle, because Kevin would have wanted me to play the jingle. But I warn you, this is going to be my toughest Word of the Week. Let's hit it, Barry. We like the way he thinks, serious with the wig. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek. It's the Dictionary Word of the Week. The Word of the Week this week, guys, Kevin Young. It can be only one. You probably haven't heard of Kevin, and this is, quite frankly, the toughest word of the week that I've done, but for my own benefit and everyone that loved Kevin, I think it's the most important. Kevin was a Purple Patch athlete. I met Kevin in 2009. I did a speech on performance, and he came to me afterwards and said, I've got an incurable cramping issue. I'm consistently injured. I want to break the cycle and I want to thrive in life. And since then, little did I know that Kevin would become such a central pillar in the Purple Patch community in San Francisco, helping so many Purple Patch pros, Jesse Thomas with Picky Bars, Sarah Piampiano, so many people that he touched and helped. And he was a wonderful part of our community. And just this last week, Kevin was struck by a semi while riding his bike in Wisconsin, meeting his parents. Freshly retired from Apple. It's a terrible tragedy for us. Kevin was a wonderful athlete. He was a wonderful friend. He was a huge help and supporter of Purple Patch and for myself and Kelly personally. And Kevin, you're going to be dearly missed. I never did fix your darn cramps, did I, Kevin? I never got you completely injury-free, but you did manage to do an Ironman on every single continent, and you did contribute so much to our community. You were on the very first training camp that we ever did, and the second, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. You made nearly all of them. You actually stand, Kevin, as one of my ten originals. That's what I call them. The athletes that have been with us for so long that still stand with Purple Patch, they're an integral part of our community and we're going to miss you dearly. I want to read one thing from your obituary that was written. I'm not sure who wrote this, but I thought it was wonderful. We'll put the link to your, your obituary in the, uh, in the show notes. But I want to read one part that highlights what you did professionally. We knew you as a Purple Patch athlete and a part of the community. But I think it's worth everyone hearing what you did, and whoever wrote this did a fantastic job, and I'm just going to read it. Tens of millions of people were touched by Kevin's work with Apple Inc. He found his calling and did some pretty amazing stuff. He took charge and he made things happen. 
Apple was never a job for Kevin. It was a place where he got to intellectually play. If you've ever been in an Apple retail store and talked to a genius, you were touched by Kevin's work. It was he who architected the technical training for the geniuses who help millions of people every year. If you've ever been to an Apple authorised service centre, you were touched by Apple's work, as he helped them see how providing over-the-top service was not only the right thing to do, but it also helped the small business owner become more successful. And if you've ever done a Google search on how to do something with an Apple product, you were touched by Kevin's work. After being told that Apple would never do social media, it was Kevin who convinced the Apple executive team to help customers move into the 21st century the way that was good for everyone, and he launched the first Apple-branded social accounts where millions of people are helped to this very day. I guess you could say that the above describes the small dent that Kevin left in this world. Well, Kevin, my friend, lay peaceful and thank you. It's the very least, the smallest part that I can do to make you this week the word of the week, Kevin Young. And, as I know you would have wanted me to say, now let's go on with the meat and potatoes. All right, folks, yes, the meat and potatoes, and today we have a guest, a purple patch athlete, and a purple patch athlete that is perhaps on the fringe, one of the craziest, craziest athletes that I coach, but I'm very proud to coach him, and he's done a wonderful accomplishment. Tim Deer, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Matt, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, the reason that you're here today is to explore training in a time-starved life, but particularly wrapped around a, an event that uh, that by any stretch of the imagination, many would say the toughest test of endurance in sport, and we are going to get right down into the nitty-gritty of this. But uh, the Badwater 135-mile running race, and, and I think that there's no better person to actually outline what this event is than you. So for people listening, rather than me not do it justice, I'd love for you to just break it down in a minute or two of what is this crazy event? So the Badwater 135 uh, Ultra Marathon is a race from Badwater Basin, uh, the lowest point in the continental United States, uh, up to Mount Whitney Portal, uh, which is uh, on the mountain, which is the highest point uh, in, in the continental United States. And uh, you go 135 miles across Death Valley, uh, during which time you do some fairly intense climbs, including Mount Whitney at the end. So we're around between 14,500 feet and 15,000 feet of climbing. So it's, uh, it's certainly a great, uh, great experience for those who survive. And for, for the listeners, we have many triathletes that listen and, and endurance enthusiasts. I just want to hone in on one thing that you said there. Just pretty much 15,000 feet of climbing. That's a really big day on the bike, let alone uh, on the run. And you're doing this at temperatures probably on the low end of 110 degrees, but much of the time at over 120 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we started that race at uh, 118 degrees and uh, the hottest point of the day was about 127 or 128. And then a few times at night, it got down in the, in the mid nineties, uh, 90 degrees. So it ranged from about 90 to about 128 or so. And, and this is not a race that, you can, I can go up and, you know, go and register for next year, tomorrow type thing. There's, I think there's only a hundred competitors. Yeah. So why don't you break down how you get into this thing and, and how many people do it, et cetera. Yeah. There's a hundred competitors. Uh, every year uh, people apply and many people apply, but only about 2,500 actually meet the application requirements, which is three 100 mile runs. Uh, they have to be certain runs that are uh, kind of qualifier races. Uh, I did the Leadville 100 three times and the Keys 100, both of which are qualifiers. Um, and then anything else you've done in your career, you know, I've won the, I've won the Mel championship of the Keys 50 mile run and um, I've done Boston 14 times and about 20 or so full distance Ironman. So you put all that on your resume and then you write an essay about why you'd like to do Badwater. Because for many of us, it's a life, it's a life, one of those lifetime goals to, to get to bad water because it's so difficult. And then, uh, they have a, a really Chris Kosman, the race director who does a wonderful job. Uh, he has, uh, himself and three other people grade each application and they pick the top 100 people. 
That's super. And, and, and what's the, what's the attrition rate at these things? I know, I'm sure it varies by year. Yeah. But give it what, what's the ballpark? I'm interested. I don't actually know the attrition rate of the hundred people. How many finish on a typical year? Would you say? Well, they, they did a great job. You know, Chris Cosman does a great job. They want it to be safe. So they want people who can actually not get injured or get very, very ill. So the goal was 100% finish rate. They usually finish somewhere between 60 and 70%. One of the challenges is getting to the start line healthy. Many people come in already somewhat injured when they get there. So that's one of the big challenges of the race is to get there through the training process in a healthy status. But I'd say the attrition rate is probably 30 40% per year, depending on the year. And we're going to dig into your training. I and mean, one of our accomplishments, your accomplishments, was to get there healthy. And uh, we're going to get into sort of how you stack up relative to competitors. But let, let's start at the end, as it were. Where did you end up? How long did this thing take you, number one? And where did that leave you overall in the race? Yeah, so they, they usually have about around 50 first-timers and about 50 people that have been there, including a lot of professional ultra runners. Uh, my goal was to get in the top 50. I, get, I came in 33rd. Uh, which was, I was pretty pleased with that. Um, you have 48 hours to complete the race. I had a goal of 39 hours. I did 36 hours, uh, which again was, I was pretty pleased with that. And I was uh, in, in the top 10 of my age group. So all those things were pretty, um, pretty satisfying to me. And I came out uh, the other end just really just uh, thrilled with the, the, the day I had with my crew and, and the time we had there. So it was a really great experience. Well, there's, there's going to be listeners hearing this right now and and wonder whether the finish line uh, crosses the gates of a, uh, a mental institution and uh, and others that are maybe like wow that sounds really cool and that there's obviously the broad spectrum F- for me it's you know it's, it's almost unfathomable but our, our focus today and we are going to go through the race step by step because I think it's a wonderful story and it, and it really grounds into what an experience like this is and, and how tough it is and what you went through. So I, I really want to share that. But I think the compelling stuff is is really your life and how you've integrated this into life and your approach to training, which I think is going to really surprise a few of the listeners. And so before we break down the day, I want to break down the training, but before we break down the training, we need context. And so let's go all the way back. And I I think as with any guests that we have on the show, I really want to understand who you are as a person. So let's go all the way back. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, your family, a little bit of your your education? Yeah, I grew up in Chesapeake, West Virginia, which is a uh, great little town, uh, coal mining town near, near Charleston, West Virginia, where I live now. Uh, and I grew up uh, in that town with a, my dad was a coal miner. My mother was a licensed practical nurse. And um, we had a great childhood there. We played a lot of sports. And uh, it, was a, it was just a really simple country place to grow up and um, still still a great place to be. And um, from there, I, I went to um, college uh, at, at uh, a local university and then went to medical school at West Virginia University and, and then went on to do a residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia uh, which got me into the interventional spine world I, I work in now. Wow, and and I, I wonder, do you have siblings? I don't. I'm an only child, so I was uh, I was uh, always uh, trying to find some folks to play to play ball with, if you will. So uh, the only child. It's the same as uh, as uh, my son Baxter. So um, all, all good stuff. But I wonder how many how many of your family members had been to college when you first went to college? Uh, I had an uncle who, who, who had gone to college and medical school, but my, my dad and his father and uh, my other grandfather were coal miners. And uh, it, it was a tough, uh, tough life they, they led. It was a good job. They all enjoyed it, but they came home fairly beaten up every day from the mines. And I decided at an early age that I, w- I wasn't tough enough to be a coal miner. Um, and I wanted to go to medical school. But I will say that I learned a lot of endurance, I think, from watching uh, the, what they went through and how they endured through a lot of hardships physically. So I do think they were actually very good role models on uh, physical endurance and what the body can do when uh, you're driven to continue. So I think that was a, a good part of uh, my endurance training was watching that and watching my mother uh, work late shifts at the hospital and come home. So I saw a good work ethic growing up. So 
good examples for me. Yeah, and it's, and I mean, I'm I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm assuming that the town I sort of hear so much about these towns, and the thing that I always think about is community. And there, there must have been a, a fantastic community in a in a town like that, yeah. You know, I still see my little league football coaches, my principals, my teachers. Uh, there was such a community there that everyone supported everyone and and really gave each other encouragement. So uh, that, that's really true, Matt. I think there's a, a lot of good people in, in every town, but in those small towns, they really come to the, the top of the, of the heap, and, and really it's so important to help each other. So that, that, that type of community, um, type of atmosphere was, I think, very helpful to me. And, and let's, go to, let's go to sports. The, because if I have one of my professional athletes on or, or someone of, of a particular expertise, I'm very interested in their, their journey through sports. And I ask this question a little loaded because so many, so many athletes begin multi-sport. I don't mean as a multi-sport athlete. I mean d- doing various different things and then find their way into endurance sports. So, so what was your background? Were you straight into running or were you doing lots of different sports? So in- interestingly, when I grew up, there was no swimming pool near me. So I didn't know how to swim. I know you're a big swimmer. Matt and and I, I never rode a bike very much, so uh, so things like triathlon was not on my radar. Uh, football was on my radar, and, and track and field, and so those are the two sports I focused on. Um, didn't have a lot of uh, God-given talent, just just hard work. And in, the, in track, for example, the 400 meter dash was a perfect race for me. wasn't quite fast enough to be a sprinter, but I didn't. I was kind of a big guy, so endurance-wise, uh, it was a little too long. So became a 400 meter uh, runner, and then. In football, uh, played defensive back and wide receiver uh, through high school and a few years of college. So uh, those were the, really the things I focused on. I didn't really run uh, at all other than 400 meters. More than a mile was too much really at the time until I was about 30 years old when I took up half marathoning. Okay. So, it, yeah, it wasn't until you were bona fide very much an adult that, that you took up endurance sports. And, and now – let, let, let's sort of transition to training and training in what, what can only be, be described as a time starved life. So let, let's fast forward to your life now and explain your work. It involves a lot of travel. And uh, so give me a rundown of your work on a day to day basis and, and how much travel you have included in there as well. Yeah, so I my my specialty is interventional uh, pain or spinal uh, medicine, where I uh, did a, a training in, at University of Virginia in anesthesiology, and then did a fellowship in pain medicine, and then focused on the spine and procedures. Uh, and I, I really was blessed to come out of training about 25 years ago, when many of the things that was being done was quite large procedurally. And I worked with several engineers around the world and from different companies, and we developed, uh, you know, together with other many other physicians, a lot of techniques to do things less invasively. So we can correlate that to a, a cardiologist doing stents versus an open bypass. We now can put an implant in your spine through a needle versus an open technique in many cases, or put a spacer in through a, a little a little incision versus a large spine surgery. So that became my interest uh, over the years, and. Because of that interest, I did uh, really focus on research and development of, of things like procedures and devices. So I spend about two-thirds of my time in West Virginia, and the other third I spend traveling uh, both throughout the United States, but also into Europe, Asia, Africa, and other places, teaching uh, uh, techniques and methods of, of doing minimally invasive spinal interventions. So that, that keeps my travel schedule um, pretty hectic, as you know. Uh, and when I'm in West Virginia, I'm quite busy. Surgically, so we we try to find time to train, and that's always one of the things that you and I talk about is how can we find time to train effectively? Because I don't have as much time as many people may have. Yeah, and we'll um, we'll get into the the training for bad water, but m- my guess is that you probably did less running miles than than probably any other bad water competitor there of course i, I don't <laughs> didn't interview the other hundred and so it's a little bit of a wild guess but we certainly have to be pragmatic i i want to also you're not a bachelor so you're also a, family is really important to you as well only tell us a little bit of family because i think the context is important yeah i have uh, my wife melissa and i've been married 29 years uh coming up on 30 soon and uh, i have four children's uh, morgan taylor reed and bailey who are all uh, either in undergrad or graduate school right now. 
And uh, so we uh, we've we've had a lot of great travels together and uh, played. They've all been involved in different sports. So it's been a great uh, time for us to uh, to really have a lot of uh, great family outings for sporting events. And they made their way to several of my races over time. So uh, we're very close knit. Um, I just took my uh, youngest child back off to college this morning. So I'm, I'm, I'm back to an empty nest again right now. Oh, good man. Well, they, they, so there we have it sort of reminder 14, I think Boston marathons, 20 plus Ironmans, bad water, obviously multiple other ultra marathon events, family of four traveling uh, a third of the life. Many people would say this is impossible. And, and the question I think many people say is how, how do you integrate number one? And, and how do you stay healthy? So, so let's get into that and let, let's talk about, let, let's actually focus about bad water because it is the granddaddy of anything we have tried to take on so far. So I'd love to, through your lens, have your lens on the training and the approach and perhaps dive into how the training to prepare you for this bad water was maybe different than if you had have been left alone as your own coach to do it. What was, what was different with your approach? Well, so, you know, I, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts and I, when I'm running and, and so I, you know, I originally heard David Goggins talk about bad water and made me want to do bad water because he said it was so miserable. And then I learned about bad water from other folks. And, and so I, I would listen to people or look at their Strava and they were running 120, 130 miles every week building up to bad water. And uh, as you know, I, I really don't want to put my body through that much time, but I am a very obsessive, compulsive, nervous person that I'm under training. So I think had we not worked together, Matt, uh, I would have probably ran um, seven days a week uh, for sure uh, and still try to swim and bike in the, in, in, with that as well. So I think, uh, I think uh, one of the things that you and I have done well together, you've helped me um, really – tamper that back to where it's a reasonable amount of time. Having said that, what happened was I probably ran less. If I compared my notes to my colleagues, I probably ran, you know, 30%, 40% less than most of the folks that were training for Badwater. Uh, and I acclimated very differently than everyone else. And it worked out great for me. So I think our method was uh, very successful. Um, and what, what, you, know, you mentioned there swim and bike. So I think we should hone in on that. We used swim and bike, not as just recovery, but as active training for this event and so you know the swimming for cardiovascular fitness that the biking from a non-weight bearing muscular resilience was that some, was that hard to wrap your head around with this the, the obvious thing of drawing your barometer of success being how many miles do i do actually running was that was that a challenge for you well when you look at uh, your friend strava and they ran 45 miles on saturday morning and i'm, I'm biking an hour and running running 13 it is a little bit stressful that you're under training um, but having said that as i watched time go by i felt great had no injuries um, my legs felt fresh and and i was able to actually have very good training sessions uh, so I, I think it was hard to wrap my head around initially particularly that i was under training but it worked out to be a great formula i highly recommend to any athlete that's particularly older athletes, because we're prone to injury. Yeah, you're, um, I mean, I think as you went through your, your, the, my, on the other side of the equation, sort of me being the coach, I was, I felt like I was dancing in fire with you because while you were doing less than many of the other athletes, we were still accumulating a lot of miles. I mean, I, I think that the longest week that we got up to was about a hundred miles and, and we were averaging certainly 60 or more in the, in the block going up. So I think it's important for listeners. It's not like we're only running twice a week and only doing 10 or 12 miles. So I felt like we we're dancing, but that probably the most successful thing that we had is that you arrived at the race with energy and injury free. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, no question. I certainly arrived there feeling pretty normal, uh, which I think was really important. And I arrived there well acclimated and, uh, and not uh, not feeling fatigued because a lot of folks ended up coming to that race already with an injury at the beginning of the race, which would be really daunting to think about running across Death Valley uh, with an injury when you begin. So I was very pleased I wasn't in that situation. And, and how about how about when you travel? What what, what are the, a couple of the tips that you might have 
of how you integrate some of this. I guess running is the easiest thing to do when you are traveling, particularly internationally. But what what are your tips when you if listeners that are traveling that are trying to train for whether it be an Ironman, a marathon, an ultra marathon, whatever it might be? Do you have any tricks up the sleeve that you might integrate into stuff? Oh, absolutely. I, first of all, when I travel internationally, try to drink as much fluid on the plane as possible to stay hydrated because dehydration is a major factor of, you know, problems when you get, when you land with fatigue. And then when I land, I always go for a run as soon as I land. I, I think it's, even if it's only a few miles, it really helps your body to adjust to the new time zone. And then, uh, I, I try to schedule in my schedule. If, if I have, for example, four or five lectures or, I always try to schedule two or three hours of exercise time every day in advance on my schedule because if you don't put it on your schedule, it doesn't occur. Uh, and so all those things have worked well for me uh, over the years. And so um, I think if you don't have it on your schedule, it won't happen. And I think you need to make sure you really limit your, um, you know, your alcohol intake and, and really try to hydrate well. Those are some of the major factors. No, I think that's absolutely it. Let, let, let's dive into the race. But before we do, I want to – ask you something straight to the heart of it and it's a very simple question which is why <laughs> i think many people listening it's something why what 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 drives you towards this I'm, I'm presuming that it's something very personal but but i'd love to try and understand what draws you to this why why would you choose to do something like bad water you know why is probably the most common question people ask me uh, when they think about things like this. It was why Leadville, why you know why the, you know Keys, why you know. So I think really you have to ask yourself why are we doing something that potentially could be very hard on our bodies. And you know I really feel like this is a great lifestyle we live, endurance sports, and certainly it's a it's a very healthy lifestyle when done properly. And why for me, I, I want to keep proving, I, I guess, to myself that I can overcome obstacles. But I know that having four children, having uh, a lot of patients that have disabilities where they can't exercise, but they would like to, I really feel like I've been blessed with good health and I've been blessed with the ability to be disciplined in my mind. So I really want to use that discipline and that health to go out and, and really overcome obstacles that maybe hopefully will set an example for young people. And, and hopefully I encourage other people to look at obstacles in their life. And it may not be 135 miles through Death Valley. It may be a difficult time at work or a difficult family situation. But hopefully we'll encourage someone to, to really dig deep and overcome obstacles. And I think that's really why I do it. Part of it's a, a really selfish, overcoming things for my own benefit. But I think the other side of that coin is, is hopefully inspiring others to tackle their obstacles in a very disciplined and planned method. And and I think, you know, knowing you as I do, I, I, I will ask this later, but I'll comment. If we suddenly remove this from you, it would not make you a higher performing human being. In fact, you'd, you'd probably go crazy and uh, and you certainly wouldn't be better at your job or a better representation of yourself to your family. Would you agree with that? That's my insight. Oh, no. <laughs> this is my psychotherapy for sure. I mean, if, if I didn't do these things, I think I would be, uh, my anxiety level would be so much higher. And this is really a good way for me to um, really find balance in life. So you're, Matt, you're absolutely right. If I didn't do this, it would, it would be uh, really not a good day at the ranch. I would be pretty unhappy. Well, you guys listening, uh, I think it's, you might want to get a bottle of water. You might want to sit down. I think you're going to get hot and sweaty, even though it's probably not 120 degrees in your living room or car or wherever you listen to this show. But, but I want to go through the race and, and I want to go step by step. This is, that's 36 hours of joyous fun in 120 degree plus heat. It, it is a, an amazing experience. And so why don't we go through stage by stage? And what I want you to try and do, Tim, is almost replicate what you did for me as my, your race report when we, when we chatted the first time, because my jaw started to drop when you went through this. And I thought it was both highly entertaining, partly inspirational and, uh, and, and partly crazy. There's no other word, but, um, let, let's start with the setup, the town, the registration. Let's set the scene, what the venue is like and the, the tension I'm sure before knowing that you sort of started at 8 p.m. at night is when the race started. Why, why don't you set us up with that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, um, 
I, I, when you get accepted the race, you have to get a crew. So I had, I had about 10 people volunteer to crew me. People want to go to Badwater. It's a, it's a life uh, goal for many people. And a lot of times they want a crew to see if they can tolerate the race. But I was really fortunate to have a great crew. Uh, Ian Custer was my crew chief. My son, Reed Deer, was one of my pacers in my crew and my friends, Keith Bettiger, Jason Ofinger. So I, the four of them and myself, uh, all met in Las Vegas and uh, we got off the plane there and, uh, we went outside in Las Vegas. It was 108 degrees in Vegas, and we had to stand in the sun to catch the, the bus to catch the car rental. And uh, they were all saying how miserably hot they were, and I was actually not hot at all. So I knew right then I was in pretty good shape from the standpoint of acclimation because it did not feel hot to me. And I'd, I'd been in a sauna for an hour a day for about two weeks, and I'd been outside down in Florida uh, wearing a parka at 3 o'clock in the afternoon for eight days. So, you know, we'll talk maybe later. I, I limited my acclimation to about 16 days, and, and it was perfect. We drove to Badwater. Uh, we went to the grocery store in, uh, in some small town in Nevada on the way there and we went to Walmart and stocked up on all kind of gear for the race and then got into, um, into Death Valley and we got out to take a look at the scenery and it was 125 degrees and the wind was blowing and it was like being in a blow dryer. The wind was just, I mean, it's the hottest wind I've ever experienced. So that was interesting and I thought maybe I didn't acclimate well. So I was <laughs> very confident to be in really Maybe this isn't, isn't going to be as easy as I'd uh, hoped. And uh, we checked into Furnish Creek, which is a, an oasis out in the desert. It's The town really is two two hotels and a gas station, and a few folks live there. They were very nice people. They, we checked in, had dinner there. And the temperature at night there didn't drop much. Apparently, Furnish Creek has a wind flow that brings hot air in the summertime over the rocks. And so it was still 115 to 120 at night there, which was really just, again, a little bit unsettling. Uh, we went to uh, the next day down to Badwater Basin, checked it out. I uh, found out they call it Badwater because back in the gold uh, the gold rush, donkeys wouldn't drink out of the water. It tasted so badly, even though they were really parched, they just wouldn't drink there. And there's a little water spring in the salt flats there. But uh, that's the name of Badwater. And then Chris Kostman and his group, again, wonderful people and wonderful race director. Uh, they have a, a check-in process where they check your lights. You have to have a certain number of lights flashing for your crew and yourself because much of this race is you go through two nights in this race. So mm-hmm. you worry about getting hit by cars. And then you have to have uh, these special things called boopy bags, which are uh, portable toilet type bags. You have to have eight of those because you can't uh, use the restroom in, in the desert and leave it. So they check and make sure you have those, which is uh, something I never experienced with any race before. And then, um, and then they have a mandatory meeting with your crew chief and yourself with the four, with the park rangers there at Death Valley and Chris Kosman and many of the other folks. So, so that's all the pre-race stuff we're, we're doing, getting ready uh, to go. And then uh, right before the race begins, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you see if you have any other questions, the crew gets about 80 pounds of ice uh, ready to go for the race and about 30 gallons of water and then all the nutrition you need. So the crew part of that race is uh, it stays pretty busy throughout. So that's all done pre-race. And then at 8 o'clock at night, the, the first timers start uh, in wave one, which is a 33 people in wave one. So that gets us to the beginning. You have any, any questions? Yeah, I want to a couple. Uh, the first is, and this, I want to come back to acclimation. And, uh, and I was holding for this because when we think about a bad water athlete, we think about little whippets, people that are 130, 140, 150 pounds, but you actually weighed in on, on way on the heavier side, uh, over 200 pounds at, at weigh-in. And most people would assume that the biggest impact or limiter would be heat. So I want, I want you to dive into heat acclimation because there's, there's a lot to unpack there. So before we get into the race, let's, let's talk about heat acclimation and how you did it and the protocol that we used. Well, in theory, you know, people that are big don't do as well in the heat. And uh, when they weighed me in that day, you know, I discussed this, they they don't get too many 200-pound people there, and they haven't had too many people finish that are over 200 pounds. So I'm I'm kind of a bulky guy. I'm not – I look way more than I look, but I'm – I, I have my muscle mass from swimming and things is, is big enough that my weight's pretty high. So, you know, despite that, I've always liked heat and, and really always enjoyed the hotter days in Boston, the hotter days in Chattanooga and things of that nature, Ironman Chattanooga. And so, but this acclimation was going to be more difficult. 
So I, I read a bunch of podcasts that recommended acclimating from, from May until June for like two, three months and going out on all your runs with a lot of heavy clothing, trash bags. And, and then you and I discussed that and you, you felt that it would be much more beneficial to limit that to the last few weeks. And so we could actually have good training for that. So I was skeptical of your plan. Um, but I did, I did it anyway, despite my skepticism. So 16 days before the race, I went down on a family vacation to Northwest Florida where I, where I usually go. And then every morning I would run with t-shirt and shorts. And then every afternoon I would put on a wool cap, uh, a fleece shirt, a parka, pair of wool sweatpants. And I would go down the 30A. Uh, and I would draw so many looks. It was amazing the number of looks I drew from folks um, because I looked like I was totally psychotic. But I would run at least 10 miles wearing that, that garb. And, you know, as the week went on uh, over that eight-day time period, uh, I would freeze to death in the house because uh, I got so used to that, that, that heat. So that was part one of my acclimation. And then I came back to West Virginia to work, and every morning before I went to work, I went to the YMCA, and I swam, and then I got in the in the um, saw, the dry sauna for an hour and did push-ups and set-ups. And by the time I I got to the end of that week, um, I I really felt pretty normal in that sauna. It's about 160 degrees. Also, really learned that the average person stays in there about 10 minutes. Uh, you know, I watch people come and go. They were wondering what I was doing in there doing push-ups and sit-ups in this, in this hot sauna. But, uh, so that was into that. And so that was my acclimation. So it was only 16 days long. I didn't acclimate for longer than that. It's, uh, and, and the coach's lens on that for people that are listening. So we wanted to do the morning runs down in Florida where the quote quality was. So really get effective training because we want to continue on with the priming and the fitness adaptations and everything that you would do in the key sessions. The afternoon sessions are always very low stress. And what we're looking for there is just physiological adaptations that equipped you to acclimate to heat. The same applied when then Tim went back home, get the quality training in and then just look for physiological adaptations. And so there's a real protocol and you know, we can, we can share this protocol, but, um, but it's not just about becoming familiar. That's step one. The other part of it is just physiological adaptations. And we know that they only take about 10 to 12 days. So for doing it for two to three weeks was, was more than enough. And there's no point in suppressing the system more than we need to do as long as the athlete has the courage to follow, which, which you did, Tim, which was super. So let's get to, let's get to the race itself. You begin at 8 p.m., uh, easy downhill, much easier, done, boom. Now, uh, look, break it down for us. Why don't, why don't you tell us how the race went? Yeah, I'll spend a few minutes here just going through the, the race itself. So we started at Badwater Basin, which is, um, again, the lowest point in America, uh, in the continental United States. And as you look up on the mountain, you, it's a sea level and it's way up on the mountain, about 300 feet above your head. And so, and it's one of the hottest parts of the desert. Uh, it's 118 degrees at eight o'clock at night. Uh, wind's blowing and, uh, there's a lot of excitement in the air, a lot of anxiety. Um, but they, they play the national anthem and, um, there's a few words spoken and then the gun fires and here we go and we take off and we're running down this uh, really narrow road from Badwater Basin to Furnace Creek and it's uh, rolling hills. You climb up out of there to probably about five to 800 feet uh, as you roll through those hills. Um, and you really just getting your vibe on and everyone's got their headlights going and then you get to Furnace Creek. Now Furnace Creek is, uh, where we were staying. It's mile 18. And there are some years where people drop out at mile 18 because they're not expecting that, that rolling hill with that heat and they get too hot by going too fast. So I kept my pace pretty slow around 9.30 to 10-minute pace despite it not being a very hard uphill. At Furnace Creek, your, your team gets new ice, gets new water, and you keep going. And, and from mile 17 to mile 42, it's rolling hills but mostly downhill. And, uh, again, it's through the desert. You're by yourself. Your crew can stop every two miles to give you ice or water. And the ice melts very quickly. It's still over 100 degrees. Um, and then you get to Furnace Creek at mile 42, and that's the first checkpoint. So you get checked in there. And then if you look bad, they weigh you to see if you've lost a lot of weight from dehydration. I, I look fine. felt good. 
didn't get weighed there. Uh, checked in and, and felt overall very good. Furnace Creek is um, where they've had the highest recorded temperature in America, 138 degrees, I believe, or 136 degrees. So it can be very hot. But at that point, it's, it's early morning, so it's it's not hot yet. I got there before. I wanted to make sure I got there before daylight, which I was able to do. And from there, you get your first pacer. And your pacer in Badwater has to stay behind you, can't assist you in any way other than to hand you things from behind. But the main thing the pacers do is really chat with you and give you some encouragement and tell you to slow down if you get going too fast. And so I was going a little too fast out of Furnace Creek for about a mile, but then you climb a 16-mile, 5,000-foot climb called Town Pass. That slows you down pretty quickly. I had talked to Charlie Engel, who was a is a world-renowned uh, ultra runner, and he gave me some advice about about these three major climbs, and that was to walk, run, not to run, but to walk most of the time and run when you could. Mm-hmm. So 16 miles, I followed that advice and uh, really walked and ran uh, up that 16-mile climb into Town Pass. And and when when did you? It, what, the transition after that is that is that the section that it brings you to the the lake section, which is the incredibly challenging part. No, so Town Pass is is just really challenging because of the of the climbing parts. There's a cutoff at mile fifty. You have to be there by a certain time. So we lost some of the competitors at mile fifty, and that's on the way up Town Pass climb. So you get there, and then once you get to Town Pass, you'll go back down hill again from there and down some rolling hills, and then you come over to uh, Panama Springs, and that's the challenging part. That's the desert and state time now. That's the the hottest part of the race, and that's where the the asphalt gets over 200 degrees. Uh, there's there's some kids there the day we drove through cooking eggs on the road, just uh, something tourists like to do there. It's so hot you can fry an egg on the side of the road there, and you know your shoes get so hot running through Panama Springs that it really is. Uh, you can feel like your feet are on fire actually. So you have to change your shoes fairly regularly. Uh, but the greatest part about that area, the, the U.S. Uh, fighter jets, uh, they're stationed nearby. They fly over your, over, just very close to the ground above you, and that really helps take your mind off some of uh, some of that agony <laughs> through there. So that's a great part. But you see the you see the town of Panama Springs up on a, a mountain uh, after you cross the desert. So it's a about an 18 mile trip through there to get over to the the top of that uh, town to construct your next climb. And I remember one thing you said, which was about the almost the feeling like the heat bounces, yeah? So you've got the radiant heat of the sun on your back, but in many ways going through that section, the the tougher part is the heat almost feeling like it's coming from below. Is that right? And when you go through Panama Springs, you may have seen uh, on YouTube and things, people wearing what looks like a spacesuit. You have a, a white uh, long-sleeve uh, top, and you have on a, a, a white hat with long flaps, and you have white pants on that go down to your feet. So a lot of folks will wear those spacesuit-looking uh, garments. The reason is, that the heat coming off the asphalt is so intense, it feels hotter than the sun, and it's over 120 degrees from the sun. So it's the strangest feeling. You really don't know where to protect yourself from. Uh, so I did not wear the, the pants. Actually, I just used water to continuously uh, moisten my legs, and I tried to run on the white line because it's not as hot as the asphalt uh, as you run through there. Uh, but the, that's the first time in my life I ever experienced more heat coming from below me than above me in the daytime running in a sun, a sun filled uh, environment. So that was a, a real uh, eye opener there. And I think that that part really gets a lot of folks because we saw a lot of folks cramping after they finished crossing the desert there. And I think that was because of dehydration from that uh, really strange heat pattern. All right. So, so where are we up to here? We're, we're, um, I was going to say we're on the way home, but not really. We're still uh, we're still a long way from home. So so carry on, please. Yeah. So now we we've got to Panama Springs. We've crossed the desert. We've gone to a little town there. There's a there's a restaurant there that has pizza, and there's um, a, a little hotel resort there with some, some cabins. And you start what you would think would be um, a, a blessing. You're going to get climbing up uh, forty five hundred feet or so to um, what's something called Farther Crowley Pass. And Father Crowley Pass is the hardest part of the climb up until now. It's a lot of switchbacks and a very narrow road. And usually the temperature drops about five degrees per thousand feet. So if you climb 4,000 feet, which should, should drop a good bit, uh, from maybe 110 down to 80. But, but unfortunately the sun just came up and it was about noon now. So as we went up that, uh, that Father Crowley Pass, the temperature remained above 95 to 100. So we didn't get much break of the altitude there. 
Um, you get to the top of the Father Crowley Pass, and again, it, it's pretty steep, and you're, you're now going to go over to a town called Darwin, and it's about nine miles away. But that's not downhill. It's actually more rolling. You, you actually end up climbing up and down about 3,000 more feet there. So it's kind of a rolling hill over to Mile 90, which is the town of Darwin, which is a small little town uh, with a few houses and uh, a few uh, uh, businesses there. And that's where you have your next checkpoint. So if you don't make it there by a certain time, you're, you're asked to, to step off the race course. So that's another thing we're all looking at. Uh, fortunately, I was, a, I was well above the, the time checks each time, so it wasn't a, a real, real issue for me. But that gets you to mile 90. Now you've got 45 miles to go. So you're starting to get a little bit confident. If you feel good there, you're, you're, you're feeling like you're going to make it through this race. So that's where we are now. From Mount 90 to 122, Long Pine. So Lone Pine is the town which is at the base of Mount Whitney. And so from that, for that 32 mile stretch, it's just a flat, um, kind of non, um, um, there's no real major, um, issues around that is there's you run past some lakes you see some things and it's really just a pretty stretch of road the problem is at mile 100 i felt so good i actually facetimed uh, my wife and uh, told her how great i felt and i was actually looking trying to break 39 hours but i was looking at about 33 hours at that point so i was feeling surprisingly good and it was too good to be true matt at that point at mile 100 i couldn't believe i felt so great it's uh and it, it just at that point that you feel the confidence bubbling, uh, your feet started bubbling. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, when you get a little bit cocky, uh, you know, the, the good Lord has a way to bring you back down a bit to humble you. So I felt really great at 104. I, I said, wonder what's going on with my foot. I've changed my shoes already about four times in my socks, but I felt my left foot felt like someone shot me with a shotgun about mile 104. So, uh, our crew was up ahead about mile 105. My crew was really smart. They had a green bucket that they would stick a flashlight in. So, you know, you have all these cards out there in the dark and you can't tell which one's yours for your crew, but I always see this green bucket ahead. So, so that was good. So I see this green bucket ahead and I, I was running, but all of a sudden I just couldn't run because my foot hurt so bad. And so I get to the, there and we have a, a chair. I sit down in the chair. They take my sock and shoe off and the whole bottom of my left foot is just one huge blister full of blood. And it goes from my, my toes down to my heel. And so it, it had been building, but uh, there was something about the time I changed shoes at mile 90 at Darwin and mile 104 that something just happened to my foot. A combination, I think, of friction and heat added together. And uh, so I was in bad trouble now at mile 105 with uh, 17 miles to go to get to the Whitney Portal climb. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, uh, worried about it now. So my my crew, we had we had a, a former nurse on the crew, and we had some some um, jacks of all trade. They took some scissors, some alcohol, and they cut that blister open from the top to the bottom, and the blood drained out. And uh, they taped my foot with rock tape uh, so I could continue. And um, at that point, I uh, put a new shoe on. I, I went to a really thick uh, on cloud shoe, and uh, I started to run. Uh, from 105 and I ran about a quarter mile and I realized I couldn't really run at that point uh, it was it was power hiking uh, and uh, occasional running but it was really it was time to, to really to try to power hike as fast as I could so that was really a, the, the, where I hit my lowest point in the race and I started getting tired because now we're in our second night so I've been awake about about 40 hours now I'm about 33 hours into the race and and so I, I'm really getting uh, low energy. And a lot of people will go and lay down and sleep for a while at that point, but I didn't really want to do that. So my crew had a new plan that, that they, they pulled out of the hat to get my energy level back. And what, what, what was that plan? Well, they left me in the desert with, uh, with my pastry <laughs> and custard, and they took off in the van. And so, you know, um, I think some other folks who saw my crew leaving thought, what in the world are they doing? But they went to Lone Pine – and they bought a pepperoni pizza, and uh, they they came back. I was we were out there. We actually had to borrow some water and ice off another uh, racer's crew. But uh, they came back and they opened up this pepperoni pizza, and uh, I take a couple pieces of that, which I've never done during a race, and uh, a five hour energy drink, which I'd never tried before. They always say never try something new in a race, but I I did the pepperoni pizza and the five hour energy, and I felt amazingly great. 
um, I took two Tylenol and now I could run again about mile 118. I was able to run again. So, so, uh, it was like a, a, a new man. So that little trip to the pizza parlor in Lone Pine was probably a critical part of my race actually. And you, you, you finished, I guess that the, the last piece of the puzzle was a little bit of the time warp. Yeah. So you, you, you suddenly found yourself at least at, at this time, perhaps partly delirious thinking that you were going to miss your own personal goal, yeah? Your cutoff of 39 hours that you wanted to do. So t tell me about that. So my Garmin, about mile 118, my Garmin battery ran out. So I had a backup older Garmin that I put on my wrist. And uh, we get to mile 122. And at mile 122, it's like an aid station. There's a, a check-in point there. But there's people laying all over the place. You know, some are vomiting, some are cramping. It, it's not a good-looking group of folks laying there when you get there. <laughs> Uh, but I felt great. So again, back to the five hour energy pizza. So I say, okay, we're going, we're not going to take a break here. We're just going to go straight up the, the, the hill. So you have a half marathon to go at this point. I make a left turn onto Mount Whitney portal road and, uh, I start getting to Mount Whitney climb. And I knew in my, in my, um, wave, wave one, I, there was at least two people ahead of me out of wave one. And I really was hoping to, to, to win wave one, you get nothing for winning wave one, but I just knew that there was a, a lady from Portugal and a man from Czechoslovakia, both ahead of me. And I, I could see them in the distance. So, so I had this goal to beat these people. And the other goal I had was to break 39 hours because I, I was looking at my watch. So as I went up the hill, I passed about, about eight people going up the hill. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a very steep, hard climb. I was climbing great. And then I looked down at my watch with about a mile to go. And my watch says, I'm going to finish in 39 hours. And uh, I was like, I'm going to miss my, my, my goal by four minutes. That was a self-imposed goal. You have 48 hours, but I really was, that was my goal. So I was stressing my crew out. So we got to hurry. I was, I was actually starting to run some up that hill. It's about 15% grade at certain points. So that it was fairly miserable. And then they kept saying, no, it's not. You're at 36 hours. And, and so the long story short, Matt, my watch was on the East Coast time zone. So I thought I was three hours slower than I really was. So when I got to the top, I realized it was actually 36 hours. So I'd actually uh, done pretty well. As, as I got nearer the finish line, my crew convinced me that I was delirious and that it wasn't uh, uh, three hours later than I thought. <laughs> so what does it mean – finishing something like this to you what what does it feel like as you've you've done this but beyond the obvious a little bit of joy and elation yeah you, you know you cross the finish line you get your picture made with chris costman and your crew and you get a belt buckle on a shirt the winner gets a belt buckle on the shirt the last guy gets a belt buckle on the shirt um that belt buckle means a lot to you and then you sat down there you know my crew had to go rearrange the vehicle to get me in it because they have so much gear in there and i sit there and look down mount whitney into the into the horizon into the area i just ran through so you look, you can see for miles in the desert and really you just think I, I had several thoughts matt one was just the the blessing of being able to do that i mean i, I think it's a, a blessing of health and just a blessing of uh, ability to to have this journey with uh, your friends and family and then i thought about people that couldn't do it and and because of health reasons and how blessed i am but also i feel like i'm kind of doing that for some of those folks who are friends of mine who who have physical impairments because you know they'd love to be there with me and then lastly i, I saw the beauty of what we'd seen that that 40 that 36 hour window we've seen so many beautiful things and we're just surrounded by nature and we need to keep uh keep our, our state our national parks and our mountains beautiful that was my other thought because we're really fortunate to have places like death valley tell me tell me one 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 last question before before my quick fire round as we call it that which is we talked about this, but what what are the parallels of going through something like this and Ironman racing in Boston? How has it helped you as a as a physician? Well, I think uh, as a physician, particularly one that does procedures, uh, we always have to problem solve. So we we see a spine or we see a you know a joint or or anything that we might be working around. Uh, we might be using ultrasound for a nerve uh, procedure. We may be using X ray guidance. And we have to figure out how to solve a problem in the most efficient, uh, safest way possible. And so I think problem solving is one of the things that we teach medical students and residents. And problem solving is all about endurance racing as well. You know, when you're doing any endurance race and you've done a lot and been a, a world uh, 
um, racer yourself around the world doing things, but many times you have a hurdle. And in racing, if you have a hurdle, if you don't get past that hurdle, you fail. And that's bad. You know, certainly DNFing a race is not something anyone wants to do. But in, in medicine, if you fail, someone doesn't do well. So I think there's a lot of parallels. I think the, the, the main difference, though, is that in medicine, you really have to figure it out. And in racing, you want to figure it out, but you don't have to figure it out. So there's a lot of corollaries, but I think at the end of the day, um, we, we really have to learn from everything we do and take those little lessons and apply those in other parts of our life. Well said. I think that's, uh, that's fantastic. There's only one way to finish. I asked this with, uh, with all of the guests. A little bit of fun to finish. It's a, it's a riff off of an old BBC radio show, Desert Island Discs, where people, the guests would go through and talk about their, the most meaningful music selections of their life that informed or, or sort of paralleled their life in many ways. So we have our own version here. And what I want you to imagine is that you're being exiled on a desert island. And I have four very quick questions. You can respond from your gut. Uh, and Fasten your seatbelt, Tim. Here we go. So the first one is if you could bring one piece of music with you to this desert island, what would it be? And most importantly, why? Well, the soundtrack to uh, every vacation my family and I have taken since they were little kids has been Kenny Chesney. We listen to Chesney at the beach and that's our favorite place to vacation. So for me, it would be Chesney because it reminds me of my family and the beach. Good man. I uh I, I, I like that. I won't, I won't profess to saying that I like Kenny Chesney, but I do love the reason that you take it there, which is the, the important thing. What, what about the book? Uh, you could bring only one book, same sort of thing. What would it be and why? Well, so, you know, I respect all people's religions and what they believe in and certainly don't ever judge uh, one religion over another. But for me, I would bring the Bible. Um, I think if I had one book with me for uh, on this island that I was going to be on for a long time, I would still strive to to hopefully make myself a better person. And I think uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I, I could find new lessons to learn to hopefully improve myself. Good man. Good man. Um, one other thing. If you could bring one other thing with you, what would it be and why? Well, probably a boat uh, so I could get off the island. But if, if I couldn't bring a boat, uh, then um, you know, my thoughts were uh, either a recorder to record ideas for, for future use when I came back to try to develop new devices. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm kind of paranoid of animals and, and uh, intruders. So I'd probably bring in a large machete. There you go. And uh, you, know, it, it, you know the thing I love about that answer, the boat – problem solving straight away you went into your problem solving mindset so that's fantastic so you're, you're getting kicked off to exile it is your last thing this is the last question of the show you have a chance for some final words what's the last piece of advice that you would give the world as you head off well it was my last thing I was, everyone is going to hear me say i would i would make sure that uh, the folks exiling me uh, told my family i love them so i would say tell my family how much i love them that would be the last thing i would say good man Tim, you're a good man. I, I appreciate it. I'm, I, I, I want to say this sincerely. I, I'm really proud of what you've done. And, uh, I, and I joked when, uh, when you joined Purple Patch with, I, I met you through the Ironman XC program. I knew all of your accomplishments and, um, and we always got along great. But, but I joked and it was a joke that I said, Oh, Tim, you're going to be uncoachable. But, uh, I, I said that. Because in part, because of in awe of your approach and, and I really wondered, can I really get this guy to, to come on the quote purple patch journey and approach things a little differently? And it's been a great, it's been, a, it's delivered a great set of lessons for me. I, I believe that every athlete that you help and you, you guide a little bit can provide lessons and, and you have provided me with lessons. And, and you've stretched me as a coach, and that's a, that's a great thing. So I, I want to congratulate you, but also thank you at the same time, and thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Matt. It's been great to be a Purple Patch athlete, and I appreciate uh, your mentorship in sports and everything you've done uh, to help me so far, and we're not done yet. We are, keep- we, we are not done yet. In fact, for listeners, we've got Chattanooga Ironman coming up in September, followed by just two weeks later the Hawaii Ironman World Championship. So – We're not even done this season. That's a good thing. That's great stuff. Good man. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, man. Well, folks, that was Tim Deere. 
Goodness me, what a story. Obviously, a little bit of a crazy week for me this week, but to hear that inspirational story, it made me smile. It was fantastic. I want to appreciate Tim sharing his story with everyone. I hope that you enjoyed it. Next week, we've got more juicy stuff coming up. So keep in tune and remember, remember, we always appreciate it when you give a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, take care.